My name is Helena Sternlicht, now Helen Rosenzweig Jonas. I live in Krakow, Poland. I have two sisters. Um, I am the youngest one. I was considered the child in the family. And uh, my parents' uh, name was Lola and Shimon Sternlicht. And I had a happy home. I remember holidays and Friday nights with the candles and kiddish. I uh, have good memories. Listening to Those Who Were There, Voices from the Holocaust, a podcast that draws on recorded interviews from Yale University's Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust testimonies. I'm Eleanor Risa. Helen Jonas was 14 years old when the Nazis occupied Poland. Within two years, her family was forced into a crowded ghetto along with all of the Jews of Krakow. One day, Helen's father was taken from their apartment by Nazi soldiers. She never saw him again. It is now November 24th, 1992, and Helen is being interviewed by Joni Sue Blinderman at the Museum of Jewish Heritage Office in Manhattan. Helen wears a dark brown jacket over a white turtleneck. A gold brooch adorns her lapel. Her carefully styled auburn hair highlights her widely set brown eyes. Helen says that after her father was taken away, the rest of the family was sent to Camp Plajov, a concentration camp built on the site of two Jewish cemeteries. In order to delude the, the Jewish people, they called the camp labor camp because they told us we're going to work. But actually it was an extermination camp, execution camp. From the beginning, I was sent to clean the barracks. I was cleaning barracks until one day the commander, Amon Get, who was in charge of the camp, walked in in the barrack and made, made his selection. He pointed the finger at me and ordered me to be his servant in his house that was located in the camp. It, uh, he was the only one to make all the decisions in, in the Camp Plashov. He was the only one that decided who is to live, who is to die. He was the most vicious man. He was so cruel. Under the slightest provocation, I received the most cruel punishment. People feared him so when they saw him from a distance, they ran. Physically, he was a very, very big man. He had to bend his head coming through the door. We were not allowed to mingle with other prisoners. I was there with another young woman. 
and we had to share a room downstairs in his villa in the basement. He would ring this little bell to call me, and I ran so fast to those stairs up, and when I didn't show up within a split of a second, he, he would slap me so hard on my cheek that My ears were ringing. Can you describe more episodes for us? Certain times, certain nights when he didn't sleep and he was drinking all night, and I would see him walking out six o'clock in the morning before the people called prisoners were to go to work, and he would shoot on a random and he would come back and I, I see him whistling and laughing. He had two big dogs, big dames and he would train them to attack people. He used to put this big glove on his arm and train them. And frequently he would call me out to watch him in the backyard. How he ordered the dogs to chase prisoners and tear them apart. They were like little horses and they chased the people. And he yelled out, and then they started chewing and grabbing on the people. I can never forget it. And his face, when this was done, this face of pleasure. I remember at one time, he was standing near the window and called me. He was holding a rifle toward the window and he said, you see those stupid dogs down there, meaning our people, they were digging ditches there and carrying rugs. And it seemed like they probably stopped for a while. And he says, if they don't start in five minutes, I'm going to start shooting. Where I ran out so quick from the villa, instead of going around the, the road to get down, I slid down. There was a very big hill down. I slid on my back because I was worried that I might never make it to get down on time to warn them that he's watching. And he would probably have done it. He told us he hates Jews, and he will always be hating Jews. And because we are Jewish, he has to hate us. Even if we do the job well, he still has to hate us. I would say that every day was the most frightened day of my life. He had his mistress with him, and she was in charge of giving us orders. Do you remember her name? Ruth. Was she a non-Jewish woman? Of course, she was, she was a German. 
he lived a luxurious life. He had company constantly, he had his mistress, and he had the two mates, the Chewy slaves, which one of them was I. He was having a lot of parties in his villa with a lot of Gestapo. And he would entertain all night, sometimes till dawn. And I had to serve all night. And each time I walked in the room, I was humiliated by those drunkards calling me names. Schindler was part of the company he entertained. Somehow Schindler would come down to the kitchen and uh, try to always to give, give me comfort. I couldn't figure him out. I, I was frightened. I saw him upstairs with all the Gestapo laughing and drinking and carrying on. And here he would come down and put his hand on my arm and I was so frightened. And he would tell me, don't, don't you worry, don't you worry, you'll be all right. He would take me to the window and he would tell me, you see those Jewish people, you people, they work, they carry stones, they carry rugs, just like in Egypt. Remember when the Jews were in exile and then they were freed? He said, that's what's going to happen to you. You're going to be free of the hell. But I really didn't trust him. I was not allowed to mingle with the prisoners. And I, I took big chances to go see my mom. I had to go see my mother. I never told her about my conditions, I, but I'm sure she knew. My sisters and my mother were in the barracks. I was alone with my friend sharing the room in the villa. Where did, what was your friend's name? Her name was also Helen, but he gave us both different names. He called her Lena, and he called me Suzanne. She was older. She was older. She spoke fluently German, and she taught me a lot. She protected me many times. I was really a child yet, since I really came from a home that I was the baby in a family. I had to grow up so rapidly. There was no time for me to be a child. A lot of people felt that maybe it's easier for me because I have my clothes, I have my food. It wasn't like that. It was nothing like that. It was so frightening. Even during the night, he would call. And something I said that wasn't perfectly right or to his liking, the, big, the beating began.
so many times I was pushed down the stairs and, and my face was swinging from left to right. His ha one hand was like three of mine. Fortunately, I have always believed in God because the very few times that I saw that he's trying to kill me, instead he hit me or pushed me. So it was meant for me to live. I was on the third floor in the villa and doing my chores this one particular time. When I looked out the window, I saw a lot of women walking toward the end of the camp, the entrance of the camp with white kerchiefs on. I ran down and I said to my friend, I grabbed a white kerchief and I said to her, I'm going because I see a lot of women. I think there's deportation. And I said, if, I, if, if my sisters are there and I can't get them out, I am going with them. And she tried to stop me. She says, wait, wait, we're going to see what we can do here. I said, no, no, I have to go. I ran so fast. I was just running, and my sisters were in the middle of the transport. I don't know, foolishly enough, without thinking, I ran straight to him. He was at the entrance of the door next to the baggage cars, cattle cars, where they were loading the women on to be sent away. And I approached him, told him that my sisters are in the transport, and he swung his arm at me and hit me so hard. And he says, to get away, to get away because he's going to kill me. All of a sudden, I heard a voice behind my back telling me, Move away, move away. I tell you something. Well, you see, I don't know, for some reason, some of the SS and some of the Jewish police, knowing that I work for him, for the commander of the camp, I was able to have some privileges here and there. And I heard this voice in German telling me to move, 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 and he's going to tell me something. And then a very quiet voice was telling me, don't turn around, don't look at me, just walk, walk. And, and I'm walking along. He says, don't look at me, don't look at me, don't look back. And he said, tell your sisters to gently move back very slowly because we just got orders that we do not have enough cars for the people to send away. Therefore, we're going to cut some people off from the end. So tell them to move back, but very slowly. And don't look back. Simultaneously, my friend, knowing that I didn't come back, she assumed that, yes, my sister are in the transport. She woke up his mistress and ask her to call the Jewish police that was on the end of the transport entering the barracks to give an order to get my sisters out. Well, she fought her so hard. She said, I cannot do it with my, without him. Please don't ask me to do it. I can't do it. 
But my friend insisted, and she said, you must do it for us. We worked for you for such a long time. She practically forced her to get to the phone and call the Jewish police, and that's what happened. Simultaneously, as my sisters were moving back, the Jewish police came to take them out. And that's how I have my sisters. She always kept telling us, Ruth, his mistress, that she has to tell him someday when she's going to get him in a good mood because her conscience bothers her. We pleaded with her, please don't tell him, please. She says, no, I can't live with it. I have to tell him. But I get him in the right mood. Well, this was the night when she told him. And he came looking for me with a gun in his hands. It seems because, excuse me, because I wasn't there, he, he beat her up. He beat Helen. She be, he beat her up so badly. This woman still cannot hear on one ear due to the pounding with a gun. I came in the morning. I was trembling like a leaf. And all of a sudden, I hear the call. And I come up, and he's in the bedroom. And he's looking at me, and with a sadistic smile, he said, you lucky dog. And I didn't say a word, because I was so frightened that he's going to go afterwards and look for my sisters. But he didn't. I had been connected with a group of resistance in Camp Lashov. They were connected with the resistance group in Krakow by ways of taking out certain information from his cabinet draw. They were very helpful to the people of resistance. I also have gotten copies of certain passes from the camp that were given to my friend who is in charge of the group. And because of those passes, some people could move and get out of the, of the, of the camp. Where would you get the passes? He had, he had them in his cabinet locked, but I had keys to all the cabinets. And I made copies. They supplied me, my friend supplied me in a little copy equipment that I could copy them. It was very fearful because he used to come, he used to ride a horse frequently, a white horse. and. He would show up very frequently, and I wouldn't even know when, but those were things that I felt I had to do. Many moments I felt like he probably one day will say, I don't need you anymore, and that will be the end of us. And toward the 
end of the, toward the end of the Camp Plashov, when the Russians were moving closer to the borders, he did kill some of the people that were close to him. Some of the Gestapo? His secretary, his, no, the Jewish people that were close to him in the office. He killed a few of them, and we knew that we going to be killed as well. One time I, I heard um, the door bell, and I opened the door, and two civilians came in and asked for him. And uh, I called him, and he came down, and, and um, they showed him the identification. And he moved back, reached for his hat and his belt with a gun, and walked out in center with them. I didn't know what was happening, but I ran down to my friend, and I said it looked like he was arrested. We were alone for a couple of days, and um, nothing was happening until I received a phone call from him. It was unbelievable, like a different voice. He said to me to pack some of his personal belongings, and somebody's going to be pick, picking it up. When did this happen? This was got happened just before the liquidation of Camp Plashov. And do you know now who these two people were? Yes, are? we knew because we found out that he was arrested for black market activities. He did take a lot of the belonging from the prisoners, from the executed prisoners. There were jewelry, there were gold. Some dentists were pulling out gold teeth from the executed prisoners. It seems like he took a lot for himself and and as SS had reported him. Fortunately, he was arrested by his own German, otherwise I wouldn't be here to tell the story. And that's where Schindler came back and said to me and my friend as well, you coming with me. I am building a factory in Czechoslovakia and you gone beyond my list. Fortunately, he remembered me and my friend, and he came in the right time, knowing that Ged is arrested, that he can take us along. And um, I was able to take my two sisters along with me. My cousins, my grandmother, my aunts were all gone. And your mother? My mother, my mother was was very ill in the camp due to lack of medication. She died in camp. Schindler, um, I personally uh, had mixed feeling about him. I know he saved thousand people and saved me and my sisters, and uh, I think he's a savior. But he was a Nazi. You know, I saw him in the villa in many ways that he was holding hands with Amangad and laughing with the, all of them and, and drinking and behaving like the rest of them. I, I couldn't connect the two together. I guess he was using them as well. 
I feel that um, he was an opportunist, but he saved us. And um, if not for him, I don't think I would be able to be able to tell the story. I don't think I, I, I am having a very hard time talking about it. However, I, I think that we have to keep remembering it with each generation so we can guard the world against another Hitler. I try very hard not to remember because I have a lot to live for. I have grade three children and, and four grandchildren, and uh, I look forward to, to a normal life as best as I can. I try not to hate, but I will never forget it. The pain is there and never leaves me. After the war, Helen Jonas testified against Amon Gut at his trial in Krakow. Gut was found guilty on multiple counts, including homicide. He was sentenced to death and hanged. Helen immigrated to the United States in 1948 and settled on Long Island, where she raised her family. Helen spoke frequently about her experiences during the Holocaust. She appeared on news programs and was a guest speaker at numerous high schools, colleges, and organizations. Helen was featured in a 2006 documentary called Inheritance, a film about Amon Gutt's daughter, Monica. Monica and Helen are shown meeting for the first time at a memorial on the site of the Plajov concentration camp. Helen Jonas died on December 20th, 2018, in Boca Raton, Florida. She was 93 and was survived by two of her three children, four grandchildren, and three great-grandchildren. Her son, Stephen, said his mother believed that you need to forgive, but not forget. To learn more about Helen Jonas, please visit our companion website at thosewerethere.org. That's where you'll find episode notes, a full transcript, archival photographs, previous episodes, and background information on the Fortunoff Archive and the Museum of Jewish Heritage. Those Who Were There is a production of the Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies, which is housed at the Yale University Library's Manuscripts and Archives Department in New Haven, Connecticut. This second season is a co-production with the Museum of Jewish Heritage, a living memorial to the Holocaust, New York's contribution to the global responsibility to never forget. The museum is committed to the crucial mission of educating diverse visitors about Jewish life before, during, and after the Holocaust. This podcast is produced by Nahani Rouse, 
Eric Marcus, the Fortune Off Archives director Stephen Naren, and Trevor Walsh, collections project manager at the Museum of Jewish Heritage. Thank you to audio engineer John Gordon. Thanks as well to Christy Bailey Tomachek, Joanna Aruda, Noah Guto Ellis, and Inga Detaya for their assistance. And thank you to Sam Cassow for historical oversight, and to photo editor Michael Green, genealogist Michael Leclerc, and our social media team, including Christiana Pena, Nick Porter, and Sarah Barber. Leover Gerbin composed our theme music. Thank you as well to Stephen Jonas and Vivian Delman for providing family photographs and background information about their mother. Special thanks to the Fortunoff family and other donors to the archive for their financial support. I'm Eleanor Risa. Thank you for listening.